This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. In the wake of a controversial bill to crack down on riots in Florida and, according to opponents, curtail free speech, there's another bill that isn't getting quite as much as attention. It's around policing reform. Senator Randolph Bracey says it doesn't include everything he wanted, but with its focus on use of force training and limits on chokeholds, at least it's a start. I spoke to Bracey on Wednesday about the bill and what the next steps will be. So talk to me about some of the nuance in it. Like, is uh, the the bill that is under discussion, is it everything you hoped would be in there, or did you have to make some compromises along the way? I definitely had to make some compromises, but it's a good first step. It prohibits children under seven from being arrested. Uh, it requires training, de-escalation training, uh, uh, other training that officers have to embark upon when becoming a police officer. And every police unit has to require uh, this training and have it in their procedures. For an example, they have to ban chokeholds unless they're the, under the threat of death or serious bodily injury. So uh, it's some very good stuff in this bill. And uh, I would have liked for it to go further, but it's a good first step. What isn't in there that you really wanted to see in there this year? Well, we have to talk about some accountability measures. So all of these police units will have to now adopt use of force policies, but there's really nothing said about what happens if it's violated. So I think that's the next step, and and we'll probably look at that in the future. That must be a little bit disappointing then, because as you say, it's one thing to have a policy in place. It's another thing to sort of see how that policy is actually implemented. Um, are you expecting that it'll be tested in, in the upcoming year if it you know makes it to the governor's desk and is, and is signed? Yeah, we'll definitely be looking at how it's implemented and what's the result or the impact of it. And we'll come back next year and make some decisions on how we build upon this piece of legislation. When it comes to training too, I mean, a lot of police departments and sheriff's offices, they have some of these things in place already, don't they? Yeah, some police units have these training mechanisms in place, and some of them don't. And so we're just trying to put a uniform standard across this state that all police units have to have these this training and these policies in place that specifically talk about use of force and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Because I guess there have been some cases that have come to light that maybe weren't getting so much attention um, in the aftermath of the verdict and the the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, um, fairly similar cases. So that's, I guess, given it some momentum, at least got, gotten people talking about it and thinking about it more. Definitely. It's given it momentum. For an example, every police unit has to train on and have a policy about the duty to intervene in incidences where there's excessive force, responding appropriately when a person has substance abuse or mental illness, uh, de-escalation training, limits on the chokehold. So it's, it's some things that we are putting in place that has never been uh, before they've never had training on some of these use of force tactics and they've never had policies that prohibited them. So, so it is a step in the right direction. The idea of asking 
law enforcement officers to essentially you know police each other when it comes to some of these issues i mean that's that seems like it might be a bit of a high hurdle to clear well we have to start somewhere and in the bill it requires an independent review when there are use of force uh, incidences so they aren't totally policing themselves uh there will be an independent eye mm-hmm. looking at what they're doing but it seems like in the past at least the the um you know the police unions have been fairly strong and then i think it's difficult for an officer to to speak out sometimes when when they uh if they see something that's untoward that their fellow officers might be doing yeah i mean everyone knows that it, that there are those issues where police usually stick together even in incidences where um there's been some misconduct so that's something that we've got to continue to talk about uh, but we tried to put in place an independent review so that it's not totally done under the guise of what the police do we have other eyes looking at these use of force incidences so it may not be enough but it's definitely a start and we can i think build upon that do you see this legislation um senator bracy as a a bit of a balance to the other bill that was signed into law not too long ago by the governor, which addresses protests. You know, it's been referred to as the anti-riot bill. So does this kind of help balance that a little bit? Because there's been a lot of outcry over that and concerns from folks about the implications for limiting people's free speech and what it might mean for people who are caught up in protests inadvertently, perhaps. No, this is not a balance at all, not the least bit. That anti-protest bill went so far in criminalizing what I call protesting injustice that this police reform measure is a small step, um, but it it doesn't come close to the far-reaching impacts of the anti-protest bill. So I, I don't even think they're close to being even if we're talking about trade-offs. And then as far as the one of the elements you mentioned too, the um, requirement to, to not be arresting children was under the age of seven. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that sort of arose from that case which was reported on pretty widely back in 2019 where a, a six-year-old was arrested by a, a school resource officer and was that kind of the motivation there? Yeah, it happened in my district. I've sponsored the bill every year since that happened and that language was uh, a part of this package. So it's something that I've been advocating for, and he took my language and put it into the overall package. On the face of it, it's kind of strange to be reflecting that you even have to put that in writing, right? Like not to arrest seven-year-olds. I mean, it's 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 such a, a young age for somebody to be put in handcuffs and taken to prison. Yeah, this is Florida, though. So uh, I think it is necessary. Um, we've had cases where six-year-olds are arrested, a five-year-old was arrested. So uh, we have to put this in, in place so that those actions don't take place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, looking ahead, does 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 this seem like um, a fairly worthwhile achievement for this legislative session? I know there's been a lot of kind of bills floating around. The, the uh, Democrats have had not a huge amount of success this legislative session, but this, this one must feel fairly good to to chalk this up if and when it's signed by the governor. Yeah, it's a win. And again, it's a step forward. And so I think 
Democrats are appreciative of this bill and just the acknowledgement that something needs to be done. And so I think it's a step forward. It's progress. And so there's some people that are saying the progress is too slow. And I understand that. But considering what's been done in the past and the fact that we were able to do something this year, I think is a step forward. And so I'm happy to be a part of it. What would you see as the work going forward then to try and bring some accountability? Are you going to be working with the police, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies, with police unions to try and bring that bring that about as well? Yeah, you know, I've had conversations with the Senate leadership about how we build upon what it looks like we're going to pass this year. And they're open to conversations. I think a lot of people want to see what happens after this is implemented. There is some uh, uh, data transparency or collecting, data collecting that will be a part of this bill. And so we'll be able to analyze the data also to see how this is working. And then I think it can inform our decisions next session on how we build upon this legislation. Senator Randolph Bracey, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. Up next, the federal investigation into former Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg has uncovered a panoply of alleged misdeeds ranging from sex trafficking to identity theft. It's also connected some of the biggest names in Republican politics in Florida. Jeff Weiner with the Orlando Sentinel joins us to talk through the complexities of the case and the dizzying array of charges. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Former Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg swept into office on a promise to modernise the office, save taxpayers money and do away with cronyism. Following his arrest last year by federal agents, Greenberg now faces more than 30 charges, including sex trafficking, identity theft, stalking, bribery, wire fraud and theft of hundreds of thousands of dollars. The investigation, with its dizzying list of indictments, has also revealed a tangled web linking Greenberg with powerful political allies across the state of Florida, including high-profile North Florida Congressman Matt Gates. A team of reporters at the Orlando Sentinel has been untangling the threads of the story as the case unfolds. Jeff Weiner is the editor for the Orlando Sentinel's Justice and Safety team. He also is the host of the Sentinel's podcast about the Joel Greenberg case. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, this case involves everything from sex trafficking allegations to big development deals to election fraud. Where do you start with a case as big and sprawling as this? You know, I've been trying to wrap my head around that, you know, throughout covering this. I think probably the easiest place to start is where we believe, but don't know for sure, that the federal case against Joel Greenberg started, which is that, you know, back uh, when he was running for re-election, he is accused of having run a smear campaign against a a re-election rival of his, um, a a local teacher who works for a preparatory school, who um, Greenberg is accused of sending these bogus letters that accused this teacher of all kinds of horrible abuse of a student, all of which was false. 
Um, and uh, that was that led to Greenberg's initial arrest. And from there, the, the case kind of just unraveled, um, you know, during a search of his house and his car. There were these um, fake and stolen IDs that were found, uh, according to prosecutors. Uh, those uh, have been tied to an identity theft scheme. Um, and they also uh, seem to play some kind of a role in sex trafficking, where Greenberg is accused of having um, trafficked a teenage girl. Um, you know, and, and basically, um, you know, potentially traveled with her uh, for the purposes of commercial sex. Um, and then, you know, other things also, you know, emerged out of that, including an alleged embezzlement scheme involving Bitcoin, where he was accused of, uh, you know, profiting more than $400,000 from his office. Uh, but, you know, the thing that brings it to the national forefront and that, you know, that, that expands out from this is that, you um, uh, allegedly, this in, this investigation into sex trafficking that has already produced charges against Greenberg is also uh, targeting Matt Gates, the, the congressman from the Panhandle, um, who obviously is a national political figure, somebody who is uh, Donald Trump's um, one of his most vocal supporters and advocates. Um, so that adds an entirely new level of intrigue to what for us had been a local story for a long time now. Right. And there were lots of red flags, right, about Joel Greenberg. I mean, I'm thinking back to the start of his tenure as tax collector he ousted the longtime tax collector there and, and promised to update the office and, and bring more accountability but pretty much immediately things went off the rails just kind of walk us through what happened at the start of uh, his time as tax collector in, in uh, Seminole County it almost immediately was ripe with controversy you know as you said he ran on a platform of ending cronyism of ending you know political favors and and people abusing their office you know giving contracts to family members stuff like that but he you know from what we've seen in in a county audit and these prosecution documents he basically almost immediately started doing exactly what he accused his predecessor of you know there were quickly were controversies about him buying and selling taxpayer owned properties um, there were questions about his spending. He was spending much more than his predecessor had, which meant that less tax money was being returned to the taxpayers. There was an early controversy about him allowing his employees to openly carry firearms, which is obviously not something that tax collectors typically do. He, he himself started wearing a badge. He also uh, was accused uh, by a driver of essentially conducting a traffic stop. He pulled over a woman who, who he said was speeding and, and berated her. Um, that you know could have potentially gotten him charged. It was reviewed by local prosecutors who decided not to go forward. Um, and, you know, it kind of went on and on like this. There was a there were Facebook posts that he made that were Islamophobic. You know, he would get into spats with local elected officials. And, you know, we reported years ago now that he had handed out these huge money contracts to uh, for consulting to people, including people who were in his wedding party, close friends of his longtime allies. And a lot of this was for work that just didn't seem to exist. You know, we couldn't really find any any hint of what a lot of these people were doing. You know, and that since has been borne out. So, yeah, red flags, I would say, all over the place. I mean, there were at least four separate occasions that people went to the FDLE, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, with complaints against him. Um, but none of it ever quite landed. And in fact, I would say that Greenberg was probably the favorite to be reelected until his arrest last year. Um, but the feds went after him and have since built a, a humongous case against him. Yeah, it, it is humongous, right? I mean, there's like something like three dozen charges against him. It is pretty mind-boggling, though, to think that, as you say, he was on track to be re-elected when you just you list all of those things. And, and it's a story that I know that the Sentinel has done a lot of reporting on. You almost have to have a Greenberg desk at the Sentinel at this point. So how many more threads are you anticipating with this story? 
You know, we do actually currently have a Greenberg desk at the Sentinel. I'm actually uh, right now uh, running several reporters who are focused primarily on on this story. You know, on on the Mac Gates elements of it. You know, the the development uh, elements of it that are that are branching off from it. You know, what we're finding more and more. You know, and, and why it's hard to say how far all of this goes is that the Seminole County Tax Office um, under Greenberg seems to have just been this nexus of money, power, you know, political allies. Basically, you know, a lot of, of, of politically connected people were on Greenberg's payroll. You know, we laid out in a recent story, you know, ranging from Matt Morgan, the Longwood City Commissioner, former, uh, you know, um, elect, supervisor of elections, Mike Hertel, um, you know, he, uh, Chris Dorworth's firm, uh, uh, Ballard, um, which he recently had to leave, you know, was also tied to the tax office. Um, and then there are all these other kind of uh, secondary allies of, of Greenberg and Gates that have been pulled into this controversy, including um, reports that Jason Pirazzolo, who's a local doctor, um, was on a trip that's being scrutinized by federal investigators. There's a lot of branches off of this. And, and to be clear, none of the people I'm naming other than Joel Greenberg have been charged with any crime. Every one of them who has spoken about this situation has denied any wrongdoing. Um, you know, and, and the, 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 what it is that federal investigators are looking into is kind of leaking out through media reports, but we can't definitively say which of these people are targets and which are not. But what seems to be clear is that Greenberg, you know, very much prized his connections to people of influence and people of power and was willing to put them on his payroll, was willing to, you know, use his tax collector's office resources um, to, you know, to, in some cases, enrich them. Um, and we're going to keep exploring every direction that, you know, that those connections take us in, because it, it seems clear that, um, you know, that there was a lot going on behind the scenes here uh, that we weren't, you know, always aware of at the time. Yes. And when I think back to uh, some of the reporting we did at, at WMFE, I, I invited uh, Greenberg to talk about one of the, the things you mentioned earlier, which was deputizing his his employees at the tax collector's office to essentially be uh, law enforcement officers. Um, he even had a badging ceremony for it. He wanted them to openly carry, as you, as you mentioned. Um, and and below the surface, there's there's this other layer of of uh, um, things happening, you know, criminal and otherwise. Um, how do you how do you try and explain somebody like that? Like, if you thought sort of much about the the motivation, other than the kind of connections to money and power, and the fact that he was able to get as far as he did and there weren't more people trying to stop this in its tracks. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say, you know, when you look at the charging documents and, and what Greenberg is accused of, you know, both both by federal prosecutors, by a county audit, you know, by people who, who worked at the office at the time, um, it really is quite brazen, some of it. You know, the idea of, you know, for to, to pull out one example, you know, employees told federal authorities that they saw Greenberg reaching into the basket where, you know, customers who had uh, surrendered driver's licenses would, you know, they'd be put into this basket. And he's accused of essentially just snapping the IDs out of there and then using his office equipment and his access to the state's da- driver's database to make fake IDs for himself with this. And you, you wonder how does someone think that they, you know, if that's all true and that's what's been alleged, uh, how does someone like that think that they're going to get away with that? And But, you know, it, it does seem as though, you know, and this is something that my colleague Scott Maxwell has written a fair amount about, um, as though, you know, since he had not, you know, gotten into trouble for these things and since you know, some of these things that had come to light had not led to any consequences for him, you know, 
maybe it was just as simple as they're not seeming like consequences could come for him. You know, it's difficult to say, I, you know, I haven't, I can't get into his mind, but it certainly is the case that, um, you know, several attempts by local officials, you know, several reviews by local law enforcement and state law enforcement just didn't produce anything in terms of, you know, hampering the behavior that had surfaced publicly. Um, and certainly, you know, some of the financial stuff that has led to charges against Joel Greenberg, including, you know, some questions about his spending, this Bitcoin operation that he launched out of his office, is stuff that, you know, we and, and other news outlets, including you guys, I'm sure, have have been reporting on for a very long time now. Um, you know, but what local officials um, viewed as wasteful or questionable, federal authorities are now saying were crimes. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jeff Weiner. He's the editor for the Orlando Sentinel's Justice and Safety team. We're talking about the Joel Greenberg case. Sentinel has been doing a lot of reporting on this and has a podcast out now hosted by Jeff on the case. Um, and, I mean, thinking about some of the allegations, there was a, a, a former employee of the tax collector's office who, who tipped off authorities to this uh, to the, the allegation that Greenberg was setting up essentially a, a cryptocurrency scam to, to hold the office for ransom for money. And, I mean, on the face of it, it's kind of bizarre that that didn't go further. But as you're saying, the, the trail kind of went cold. There was an inquiry, but it just didn't go any further than that. It's, it is quite mind-boggling now when you see this kind of avalanche of charges against him. Yeah, I mean, there were some even stranger things, you know. I mean, the one of the employees who came out, you know, came publicly uh, – forward against Joel Greenberg and spoke to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement well before the criminal case against him had emerged, um, claimed that Greenberg had 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 basically offered to uh, pay him in Bitcoin in order for him to hack into the Seminole County government servers and basically, you know, seize access, uh, you know, during a spat that he was having with, with some of the local elected officials there. Um, you know, basically had been repeatedly asking this employee about whether he'd be willing to hack into the county servers and exchange. Greenberg said that he was going to, I think the phrase that he used was tumble cryptocurrency, basically uh, direct a large amount of cryptocurrency into this guy's possession through a series of accounts in order to conceal its origin. Um, You know, the FDLE doesn't seem to have done a ton of work on pursuing that allegation at the time. You know, I think they viewed it as kind of a he said, he said, you know, said that that basically that there wasn't an opportunity to at that point to get the employee you know wired and 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 get Greenberg talking about this, so they didn't think that they could pursue it. But the the Bitcoin you know situation itself uh, you know was very much an active and ongoing thing that 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 potentially could have been explored. You know, uh, uh, federal prosecutors say that that what Greenberg was doing, you know, he he had he had indicated that this Bitcoin company that he launched was something that was going to, you know, bring the tax collector's office into like the very modern realm. It was going to, not only was it going to help the office make money and and bring in revenue, but it also was going to be a way that they were going to, you know, store customers um, identifying information in the future. It was the wave of the future. It was going to be this huge boon to the office. And, And that's something that he always said when he was promoting these, you know, these questionable actions was that it was all going to benefit the office. But according to federal authorities, um, it benefited him. You know, he was moving money from the tax collector's office into accounts, you know, allegedly that that he controlled using it to buy and sell cryptocurrency, using it to buy and sell equipment to mine cryptocurrency. Um, and, and all of this was at, you know, according to the federal authorities, a great profit to him, you know, and, and uh, that certainly is a situation that was right out there in the open. You know, there had been plenty of reporting from us and others about the fact that he was doing this kind of Bitcoin scheme, 
not necessarily that he was profiting from it, but that he, you know, had had launched this company, had set up this operation in the tax collector's office that was mining Bitcoin and, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows. But it's not clear that before the federal authorities got involved, that there was much more than that, that that occurred. And then just days after his arrest on the initial charges, uh, it, it seems that he was back at it again with with an attempt or allegedly so to defraud the federal government in terms of um, obtaining loans for a business that didn't actually exist. Uh, explain that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really baffling when you read the, 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 you know, as we were talking about earlier, the notion of like, how does somebody think they could get away with this? But, you know, according to federal authorities uh, in, in the last indictment that was filed against Greenberg, which was the fourth one so far, um, they alleged that he basically within days of appearing in federal court on stalking charges, you know, being released by a judge told that if he committed any new crimes while he was awaiting trial, that he would face you know, extremely severe penalties, potentially. Um, they say that Greenberg um, basically applied for and was granted approval for um, these loans through uh, through a, you know, a federal program created uh, to assist small businesses that were hurt by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, for essentially companies that had been defunct, ones that he had created years ago that had fallen into inactivity and that he reactivated days after his initial arrest. Um, and he's accused of not only of obtaining loans under false pretenses, including by claiming that these businesses had revenues and employees that, that they didn't have and that, that weren't actually impacted by the pandemic, but he's also accused of bribing a, an official um, in the federal government um, in order to obtain those loans, basically having somebody on the inside who he paid several thousand dollars to um, in order to have that person help him get these loans approved. Um, so, you know, that that brings a bunch of new charges against Greenberg. Um, and if it's true and if it's proven, um, it could tack on a lot of years to his sentence because, you know, there are additional penalties for, as the judge warned him when he was arrested, for committing new crimes when you're out on release, you know, and, and awaiting trial in a federal case. So, um, yeah, really just, um, you know, among the stuff that he's been accused of, it would be, uh, you know, definitely perhaps the most brazen, if true. Right. And it does raise questions, of course, you know, as you say, if the, the allegations are proven and he's convicted of those, then he will have been caught and prosecuted for them. But in the meantime, he was still able to essentially walk away with $400,000 or so of money from the federal government. So the question it begs is what kind of oversight was there on these loans and what else has been going on? Yeah, I mean, it does, you know, the, the, I'm not, you know, we haven't delved super deep into the oversight that is involved with that program, but it obviously does not speak well to it. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, one, you know, one government employee and, you know, a man who's already under indictment, you know, and, and, and in fact, who had to indicate, you know, in his paperwork that he was not under indictment, you know, apparently there was not a cross check done there because the money was delivered into accounts. So, it, you know, it, it did go through according again, according to prosecutors. Um, and yeah, I mean, in fact, the only reason so Joe Greenberg is sitting in the Orange County jail right now. The reason that he's sitting there um, is not because of the SBA loan, uh, uh, you know, alleged fraud. It's not because of the alleged embezzlement of his office. The reason that he is no longer on release is that he viol uh, allegedly violated the terms of his um, of his conditional release um, by leaving town, uh, driving to South Florida um, and to try to find his wife who had gone down there, um, you know, saying that she needed a break uh, from, from him and from all of what we're talking about. 
um, and basically drove down to, to Jupiter and, and was, you know, was down there. And then one of his family members called the police and they came out, determined that he was on release and, and didn't even arrest him then. Um, you know, he was allowed to return to Central Florida because they weren't able to get in touch with his, you know, basically his probation officer, his release officer, and confirm that he wasn't allowed to be down there in South Florida. Though eventually they confirmed that he had violated his bond terms. He was taken back into custody. That's why he's in, in jail as we're speaking today. But it, it just goes to show that, you know, yet again, another example of, you know, according to uh, authorities, Greenberg just kind of brazenly, you know, violating his, you know, a legal constraint against him um, in a way that you would think would be pretty easy to detect um, and, you know, being caught in the act. It's not normally a position you associate with the kinds of things that, that uh, Joel Greenberg's been accused of. It's, it's typically a position that doesn't really attract a lot of attention, right? So it's, it's kind of unusual for somebody holding this office to, to be accused of this just smorgasbord of crimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's typically a very, you know, I would go so far. Well, I, I know that Joel Greenberg, for example, you know, over the years had told our reporters that he was bored of it, you know, that he found the office and, and the role that the taxpayers had put him in boring. And it typically is not a very exciting position. I mean, you're you're basically, you know, it, it's an office that issues issues driver's licenses and tag renewals and, you know, uh, collects taxes, you know, any excess revenue it brings in is supposed to be returned to the county it's not a, a sexy position, um, but I think it's a good reminder, but if, honestly, for me, for, for, for us, for people who, who are watchdogs over these things, that there is no, you know, local elected office or, or local government agency that doesn't need to be watched. You know, I mean, it, it goes to show that a position that we don't typically think needs a lot of attention or a lot of oversight very much can be if it's, you know, being overseen by the wrong person, um, you know, and, and the bottom line is that, you know, a tax collector most of the time is, is not a very interesting local elected official, not usually a position that generates a lot of headlines or that generates a lot of controversy, but it is somebody who has a lot of control over a lot of money. And, uh, you know, this goes to show what can happen, you know, when allegedly somebody who is corrupt um, comes in, into control of that money. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that it's a good lesson um, for everyone, for the public, for journalists, for regulators, to remember that, you know, just because a position is not, you know, uh, headline grabbing or, you know, super interesting, and just because it's, its role, you know, when things are functioning correctly is somewhat monotonous, you know, there is always the potential for something else to be going on. Well, Jeff Weiner is the editor for the Orlando Sentinels Justice and Safety Team. He's also the host of the Sentinels podcast about the Joel Greenberg case. You can find that over at orlandosentinel.com. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Intersection, Fringe returns after the pandemic. WMFE's Clarissa Moon takes a look at what's changed for the long-running theatre festival, this year celebrating its 30th anniversary. That's when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. We're going to turn now to Orlando Fringe Festival. The festival is celebrating its 30th anniversary and it kicks off next month. WMFE's Clarissa Moon takes a closer look at what's changed for Fringe since the pandemic. 
The Orlando International Fringe Theater Festival is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. The 14-day festival, featuring hundreds of theatrical performances, was canceled last year due to COVID-19, but this year it's back with an in-person festival in Lock Haven Park and an all-new online DigiFringe. Here to talk about it are Alana Friskis, the executive director of Fringe, Lindsay Taylor, Fringe's theater producer, and Lena Feliciano from Celebration Theater Company. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So Alana, after having to cancel the festival last year, how is Fringe adapting to the pandemic? Well, it's definitely been a challenge for sure. Um, We have had to completely retool and rethink every detail of the operations of the festival with safety in mind. And um, it's, it's, it's been a challenge, but we're getting there. I mean, we've been working our way through it ever since we made the decision to move forward with a physical festival and then monitor and decide whether or not we were going to continue with that. So we are definitely having our physical festival. We've worked through the details with safety in mind at every angle and are really looking forward to, to doing this safely and getting people back together to gather safely. You know, Orlando is kind of a hub of reopening right now with the theme parks and different theaters. Uh, did you take inspiration with, from any specific places when laying out those safety gu- guidelines? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the parks have been such a great resource for us, and they're right here in our backyard. So it's been uh, really uh, a really good resource to look and see what they're doing, how they are, for instance, loading their houses and their people into their theaters. We've taken a lot of inspiration from that and just how people move through large spaces so that we can then uh, just see what, how we can, how we can duplicate that. Lindsay, looking at those safety guidelines, do all of those apply to the performers on stage as well? What can audiences expect to see from the performers on stage? Yeah, uh, the biggest thing they'll see is the performers are required to wear masks uh, this year while performing. Um, There's a wide variety of masks that are available out in the world. And luckily, our safety manager is uh, answering all those questions artists have about what is approved and what's not to keep everyone safe, um, along with just social distancing guidelines as they move and blocking as well um, as best we can in these circumstances. Awesome. Lena, what was it like to create a show around those guidelines? Um, It's definitely a challenge for any director to all of a sudden have to just change up how you're going to stage a scene, how you're going to have two characters that might be in love um, interact when they have masks on. Um, And so it's been fun to adapt though. Um, And I think that we rose to the challenge. (laughs) Now, Lindsay, the Fringe Festival hosts artists from all around the country and the world. I mean, just from doing a quick scan of the program, you can see that there are artists coming in from New York City and Massachusetts, and even from as places as far off as Japan. Was getting those artists here and hosting them uh, more challenging? Is it going to be more challenging this year with COVID-19? I think hosting-wise, we are extremely lucky that our billets, billets are the people that host the artists, uh, we're still enthusiastic about extending their homes to people that they don't know um, and artists um, coming in from all over those places. And I think that really helps solidify our artists coming from those places because they they know they'll have a safe place to stay, which I think is extremely important, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And I think that did solidify a lot of their um, decisions to come here 
Um, Cause yeah, a lot of them, we have a group coming from Japan. We have all over the country people coming in. So a lot of it was like, how am I gonna be safe and save money and still present my show with as little to worry about as possible? I did see a thing on the website that there is going to be a DigiFringe, a digital festival for everybody who is unable to come here in person. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, we're having a, another 14-day festival after our in-person 14-day festival um, with a significant amount of those shows being artists from all over the world who weren't able to make it to Orlando Fringe. We also have some brand new artists who've never been to Orlando Fringe who have submitted. And then we have a, about 60% of those artists are artists in the actual May Festival who we're filming their show and then we'll be presenting it at DigiFringe as well. So there's a huge mix between people you love, people you miss, and people you've never met before. Alana, the Fringe did a similar hybrid in-person digital festival for the Winter Fringe Mini Fest in January. Did you learn anything from mounting that mini festival uh, a few months ago? Absolutely. Uh, we learned um, uh, we learned what it's like to have an in-person event with masks on, what it's like to bring th people through space. And we also, uh, first and foremost, learned what it's like to bring artists back together again. I think that's been one of the greatest joys and one of the biggest drivers of what we're doing um, with all of these efforts is how do we get the artists back on the stage? And so from Winter Minifest, we were able to um, we had a very limited number, only a couple on stage actual events, and then we projected on a screen for the shows. Um, but I think, you know, May will be definitely a different animal with the actual live performances. But what we learned from projecting them on the shows is that people will come out and people are really hungry for arts. Speaking of getting artists back onto the stage, Lena, how does it feel to you know, after your show being canceled a year ago, getting to get back on that stage and present your show to an audience. It is truly exciting. Um, specifically, Celebration Theatre Company and this show that we're doing, Hexed, um, we have wanted to do this show for a long time. Um, and we actually applied for 2019 Fringe and our name didn't get drawn from the lottery. So we did not um, get to go in 2019. Um, and then we were finally pulled in 2020. And so we're so excited. Um, and uh, I believe the day of our first rehearsal was the day that it was announced that um, Fringe would be canceled in 2020. And of course, you know, we're so understanding about that, um, you know, but we were like, oh no, we're, we're gonna do this show. Um, so, and when, uh, when Lindsay reached out to everyone and said, you know, you didn't get to go last year, but do you want to come back in 2021? We're so grateful for that opportunity because this show is so fun and, I'm very excited to present it, especially to the Orlando theater community. I think it's gonna be very well received. Now, the theme of the festival this year is celebrate. Uh, Alana, what do you hope to celebrate with the festival this year? Oh, I mean, you know, keeping this theme of celebration simple this year is where we started from. Um, and really what it is morphing into is just an opportunity to bring people together 
um, getting the artists on stage, having the art, the audiences able to experience live art again. I mean, it is truly something to celebrate as people have been not out and about over the past year. And this is an opportunity to come together and, 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 um, and, and enjoy art and soak it in. Um, I'm just super excited about it. What kind of an impact do you hope that being together again and experiencing that art has on the community? Well, I hope it's going to reinvigorate. It's going to jumpstart us back into, into going out and seeing art again um, and prove that we can do it safely. Um, all of our shows will have limited capacity. Um, we will be, our houses will be between 30 and 50% full. And we are um, keeping distance between all the audience members and the audience and the artists. Um, but, you know, I think proving that in a large scale situation like our festival where the shows are back to back to back and there are so many all at once and that we're able to hopefully bring a little order to the chaos that is normally fringe you know usually so many people are just gathered in so many different places all the time we just explode all over Lock Haven Park and we're just everywhere um, so figuring out a way to bring a little order to that um, I think will um, will prove that we can do this and that the arts community can can thrive in this pandemic. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Alana Friscus, the executive director of Orlando Fringe, Lindsay Taylor, Fringe's theater producer, and Lena Feliciano from Celebration Theater Company. We're talking about the return of the Orlando Fringe Festival and that theme of celebration this year. Now, Lindsay, uh, the board president, Matt Brofman, uh, mentioned in his welcome letter that another thing to celebrate is that uh, Fringe is expanding its diversity and inclusion and accessibility efforts. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Um, back in June, we started our Inclusion, Diversity and Accessibility Committee um, with a general effort to amplify more voices and to have our festival be more accessible to our artists and our patrons. Um, we started by, we, we had an initial diversity lottery where we accepted three people from underrepresented communities that has been in existence for the past like four or five years. Um, we this year have expanded it to 30%. So 30% of the people who are selected to be a part of our fringe lottery uh, will be uh, from the Amplify Voices lottery. So that's a huge step right there to begin with. Um, we also will be offering more uh, American Sign Language shows uh, interpreted this year than ever before, um, along with audio description. We're actually having a training class this weekend where we're going to train people to be able to, to describe shows to people who are blind or have low vision. So it's really exciting. We've, we are just beginning. Uh, would, we hope to be a massive project in years to come, but I really think we've made a lot of great strides in the past eight or nine months. So in Mayor Buddy Dyer's welcome letter, he wrote that Fringe gave more than uh, $446,227 back to the artist and garnered about $4.3 million for Orlando's economy. Alana, do you hope, is that boost for the economy something that you're hoping for this year as well? Absolutely. I mean, we've oh, we've been wanting to hit that uh, half million dollar mark back to artists for some time, and we got so close in 2019. And um, when we were uh, pulled back for 2020, um, it left a huge hole, a financial impact hole on the artists. And so that has been a huge driver for us is how, how can we get more and more money into the artist's pockets? Because we give 100% of the ticket sales 
from every show back to each individual arts group. And um, it does result in, in quite a bit. You said the 446,000 in 2019. Um, we, if we want to hit, we want to just grow and hit and get bigger and bigger and more and more. And we hope with not only this year's physical festival, but with the Digi Fringe um, supplementing some of that revenue. Um, I don't think we'll quite hit those numbers this year with our limited capacity, um, but um, our goal is in 2022 to really, really have that huge impact. Now, it is the Fringe Festival's 30th anniversary this year. Uh, now, this is for everyone. Looking back, how has the festival grown and changed over the last 30 years and from a big picture standpoint, from your personal experience? Well, I started fringing in 1998, and that's when we were still downtown. Um, so fringe started in 1992 uh, in downtown storefronts that weren't air conditioned, and there were train tracks beside all the venues and, you know, rats running across the rafters, and it was so gritty and real and raw, and audiences came out, and they stuck with us. And um, we've definitely changed and grown up uh, since our move to Lock Haven Park with the permanent theaters. And just as we've grown, our audiences and artists have grown with us over the years. Um, and I think that's one of the most exciting things to see is we're not only elevating um, the audience experience, but also the artists. Um, I'm really proud of that. I, I see us as a beginning pipeline for artists in Central Florida to um, to test out new art and cut their teeth on, on new um, artistic endeavors, whether it's producing or acting or lighting or, you know, whatever they, they are interested in doing in theater. And Orlando Fringe has been able to offer that over the years to this community, which is a real gem. And um, I, I just, I'm very proud of where we, where we are um, and how far we've come in the past 30 years. And I know my journey has come full circle um, where I started as, you know, a volunteer in 1998, and then here as executive director, and I'm just honored and proud to be a part of this incredible organization that gives so much back to the community and the artists of where we live. Lindsay? Yeah, uh, I started as an artist in 2012 after stumbling upon the festival by taking an improv class at SAC Comedy Lab. Um, so for me, I've, I'm fairly new to the Fringe, but I guess I'm, I've been around about one third of its existence. Um, <clears throat> it just opened the realm of possibilities for me as someone who wasn't really involved in theater at all, except going to see shows. Uh, it really inspired me to be more involved and write my own shows and tour my own shows and now producing the festival. So it's really exciting. And Fringe really does that for people. It inspires people and lets you be confident in your work and want to learn new things, which I think is the most valuable part of it all. And it's a welcoming environment for artists, producers, creators to do that. Lena, how about you? Yeah, um, my first experience with Fringe, um, I haven't lived in Orlando very long. Um, it was a few years ago, um, I went to see one of my friends in a Fringe show because, you know, I have a lot of theater friends. And since creating Celebration Theater Company, worked with a actors from all over Orlando and all over the theme park areas too. And um, so he just invited me to come see his show and I just loved the whole atmosphere. I think my favorite part about Fringe is that you can just like make a day for yourself and it could be like, you could just like create a schedule of all the shows you wanna see and just spend the whole day and then you can, you know, hang out in Lock Haven Park in between your shows. And it's just a day of really great theater and seeing 
other people, uh, other theater people that you vibe really well with. Um, and it just makes for a great, just a great experience all around. And as an artist this year, um, it's been a very uh, challenging, but extremely fun and exciting experience. Um, we're so used to mounting main stage productions, um, you know, where we have a week of tech week and a lot of things we do to prepare. Um, and so Fringe is a little bit different and I get to kind of improvise a little bit more with what we're doing, but I also get to like um, be more creative in um, when it comes to uh, writing. Um, I've written the book for this show uh, that we're producing um, and I'm really excited for the Fringe community to come out and see it. And just everything, everyone I have talked to um, on the production side of Fringe as well has just been so nice and so welcoming and so understanding of first time Fringers and just uh, been so helpful. And I always uh, apologize to Lindsay for having so many questions. Um, but, uh, but every single, uh, every single time I talk to someone, it's, they're always just so helpful. So very excited. Lastly, Alana, what's the future of the Orlando Fringe Festival? Well, Orlando Fringe will be around for many, many years to come. And I hope there's a lot of growth and expansion and just have more and more impact with artists. Um, I will say in the immediate future, um, next year, Orlando Fringe has won the bid to host World Fringe Congress 2022, which is an every other year occurrence where all the fringe producers from all over the world, and there are over 300 fringes around the world, um, we all come together in one location. It's, it's been in Edinburgh, Scotland, where Fringe got its original home for several years. It's been in Montreal. And then in 2020, it was in Adelaide, Australia. And Lindsay and I were, uh, were able to go and visit there with all of the other producers and learn just so much. And so we are so excited to host Orlando's Hosting World Fringe Congress next year during our festival and so, um, you know, just just um, elevating Orlando Fringe to have that global impact and even stay more connected to the global fringe community is uh, is really exciting. Well, Alana Friskus is the executive director of the Orlando Fringe Festival. Lindsay Taylor is Fringe's theater producer and Lena Feliciano is here from Celebration Theater Company. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks Thank for having us. Thanks for having us. WMFE's Clarissa Moon with that interview. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Special thanks to Clarissa Moon for her production assistance with this week's show. You can download the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find archived shows on wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.